This is the 966, episode 34, Mumtaz Richard. Well done. Look, Ron, this is going well. 34. 34. Coming up in a bit, we're going to have a conversation with Philip Cornell, a specialist on energy and foreign policy, energy security strategy in Saudi Arabia at the Global Energy Center at the Atlantic Council. We'll talk with him a little bit about the energy transition, oil, the future energy economy, hydrogen, you name it. Uh, recently, Philip returned from a trip from the UAE from energy meetings there. So just exciting convo. On this week's episode, we'll also be talking a little bit about drones, Neom in New York, so much more. Don't forget, if you missed it, Amjad Ahmed joined us on Tuesday for a great conversation on entrepreneurship in Saudi Arabia and the startup ecosystem there. Check that out on the 966 website and on our YouTube channel and wherever you get your podcasts. It's there. Really awesome convo. Um, and also, our, oh, please, Richard. No, 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 sorry. Our guests are nothing short of spectacular. That and, discussion with Amjad was so informative and, and you know, they wanted really, really good insights on the venture capital ecosystem. And, and Phil, Philip Cornell talking today, you know, just always brings it in terms of uh, strategic understanding as well as uh, the understanding of mechanics of, of energy uh, trade and activity. Just really good stuff. A credit goes to my co-host on his deep Rolodex for keeping the awesome guests coming. <laughs> Thank you so much, Richard. Really good stuff. Before we I'm get started, get the education. We, it's amazing. Before we get started, please subscribe wherever you get this. Leave us a nice review um, commenting on how either of us look would be good or just the uh, content or quality of the podcast also is good. Anything you want to say, let us know. Uh, leave a uh, comment with your review. All right, let's get right to it, Richard. What's your one big thing this week? My one big thing, I am acting as style reporter this week. Um, uh, so on Tuesday, earlier this week, I attended the Discover Neom Showcase event in NYC, held at the warehouse, uh, warehouse like Spring Studios in Manhattan, Soho District, about, about 150 invitees, a majority of which were from the investment sector, I believe. Uh, listened to a half day's worth of presentations about Neom. Um, there were eight content sessions, and, I, and I'm sharing these with you because they had a choice of a lot of things. This is what they chose. Number one was Oxagon, Lucian, the floating industrial city meant to be emissions-free. Two, urban design and livability focused on exactly that. Uh, three, cultural industries which focused on media, entertainment, and fashion. For sports fan engagements, which was not about a neon football squad, but the culture and technologies that are reshaping how f sports fans consume content. Uh, Neom's ESG investment proposition, how to build a cognitive city, uh, essentially everything is smart. Uh, the world's largest hydrogen project. And number eight, preserving and restoring nature. Um, and my takeaways were, were, very, were generally positive. Um, for starters, this was, as far as I know, the first Saudi-sponsored and advertised public event in the U.S. since the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. It's good to see Saudi Arabia getting back into the arena to push its development narrative. So I was pleased to see that they came to New York and did a public event, um, well, invitation event. Uh, uh, an observation, again, since I'm you know, doing style reporting right now, uh, as a veteran of many Saudi events, this was not overly glamorous or glitzy. It was more businesslike and efficient. The space was interesting and human scale was uh, and, and human scale with good design and setup. 
the visual media presentations were on the fabulous side. And anybody, Lucian, who has looked at promotional materials for Neom or any other Saudi's giga projects will know what I mean. Um, they're, they're pretty impressive. Uh, also impressive was the, the list of speakers. They were well prepared. They included what must have been every senior executive of Neom, as well as others involved in the project, such as Saif Ghassimi, who was chairman and president and CEO of Air Products, which is one of the, the U.S. partner in the hydrogen uh, project uh, in Neom, and Patty Padmanathan, the vice chairman and CEO of Aqua Powers, uh, you also a, a partner in that project. Um, the purpose of the presentations was to introduce and expand a bit on Neom. It's called Discover Neom. I think it's the targeting people, Lucian, I think, who have heard of the project but haven't been quite paying, been paying as much attention to it as we have here at the 966. In terms of notable takeaways from me, its apparent progress is underway. There's 1,400 employees on the ground now in Neom. Uh, a good deal of landscaping and site preparation has been accomplished. Uh, Saudi Arabia's Aqua Power, who I just referenced their CEO, was a, was a speaker here, uh, just announced a $900 million contract for the engineering, procurement, and construction of its green hydrogen project. Uh, so things are proceeding. Of course, it's a gargantuan project, but it is started. Um, you remember, NEOM was announced in October 2017 and has mostly seemed unreal to outside observers. It's, it's, I think it's fair to say that it's progressing towards real. Mm -hmm. um, of greatest note to me, really, was, the, was the, the genuine and sincere enthusiasm shown by every one of the NEOM executives and many others who are actively advising or assisting the project. There was a palpable sense that they were part of, of something special, uh, something that hasn't been done before, and it, you know, a project really where you can let your aspirations run wild. I think they find it exciting to be a part of, and it was clear you know, that was the, the, the vibe they gave off, is that this is pretty cool to be part of. Uh, the question of many of those in attendance would, attendance would be if, uh, if it or parts of it are investable in any way. Uh, and that, that afternoon was set aside for bilateral meetings, so maybe some of those, you know, who are in attendance got a better sense of that. I, I didn't have time for the bilateral meetings. We were doing the Amjad um, Ahmed uh, episode from the road. Um, but I think the larger purpose was served. Discover Neom was a well-executed PR event that brought a sense of seriousness and inevitability to the project. I understand there will be further meetings in D.C. and San Francisco. I don't, I don't get the feeling it's going to be the same sort of uh, presentation because I think in, in, in D.C. it will be more meetings with policymakers and in San Francisco more individual meetings with investors. But overall, fascinating, good to be there. Um, if you didn't think Neon was real before, you sort of you would have walked away going, "Well, this is this you know it's on an upward trajectory and it, it might actually come to pass." It was great to see you in a suit again. I have to say um, <laughs> that uh, that was um, it was very shocking to see because you know Richard, when we first started working together, we both wore suits all the time, right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> what was um, that's that's fascinating and really great to hear. What was the appetite from investors in New York? Was there a sort of, could you gauge the the reaction of the attendees for what Neom was, was pitching? Again, I think everyone, uh, there were a number, a number of financial people, and many of them who were involved in some way in Saudi Arabia, many of them involved heavily in Saudi Arabia. So they're probably inclined to be receptive to this. 
but as always, as we know, it's always, if, is it a profitable thing? Uh, I didn't get the impression, I didn't speak to anybody who's a direct investor right now in a NEOM project. That doesn't mean they're not talking with people, but um, I think the point of this event uh, was introductory and, and get people engaged, and then on down the line, maybe if there's a, um, an investment opportunity or an investment proposition to, to take advantage of that. So what I, I guess what I'm saying is I couldn't really tell, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the people who were there. When it sounds sort of like Saudi Arabia and um, officials from Neom are sort of gauging. I mean, there was the big announcement. And then, the, of course, that was met with a lot of skepticism. It was so ambitious. It still is very ambitious. But it just sort of seems like based on the type of event it was, they're sort of reading the room a little bit on how to maybe pitch it going forward. It doesn't need some huge, glitzy, glamorous, you know, overly expensive sort of event because now that there's progress on the ground in Neom, it's sort of beginning to sell itself or the opportunities are becoming a little bit more real. Um, would you say that that's sort of fair to say, like a good characterization? Because we know the Saudis, um, you know, love big events. Um, and and so it just sounded like this was more of a professional focused affair. It was, and they did they did the, the roadshow in the UK. I'm not sure if it looked like this, but this was accessible and professional. You know, it wasn't over the top. Like I said, uh, the the visuals and the images were were extraordinary because it's an extraordinary sight, and just geographically and and visually, it's just um, really impressive. So they, they had a lot to work with. But the actual, you know, setting itself was, was like I said, it was well done, tasteful, and not over the top. Just, and it's really interesting timing, and you mentioned this, but um, Saudi Arabia moving forward with the green hydrogen project right there in Neom. I mean, things are now real. The yeah. site was flattened in, in early March, and now they're announcing a $900 million contract, um, an EPC contract, I believe, and you mentioned that as well. I mean, there's, there's tangible progress going on in Neom, and that was... That's that's sort of cool to see right now. It was, and they were images of that too. You know, site preparation, housing. Uh, I guess they're building a hospital on the site. Uh, on the and 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 there's already some some meeting spaces and uh, residences there. So, um, you know, if if you didn't think Saudi Arabia was serious about, it, there's no way I don't think you. You know, it's so often it's dismissed as a PR stunt. This is not a PR stunt. They're making a run at this. You know, what percentage they get of it, uh, the aspirations are huge, but they are absolutely making a run at it with, with really capable people who seem to be really committed to the project. And that's, I think that's compelling. If, if, if that's what you walk away with from this roadshow, that's worthwhile. You said there's another one coming up in D.C. and maybe another U.S. city, but they might be a little bit San more Francisco. muted. I think they're San going Francisco, to D.C. Yeah. and San Francisco. And like so I said, I'm not sure tech. it's going to be the same thing, but uh, they uh, maybe have different focus. You know, D.C. more policy, San Francisco more, uh, you know, uh, trying to uh, raise some investment. That's cool. It's sort of like a show of solidarity from all the CEOs. I mean, there are so many different companies that are involved in Neom that are Saudi companies, like Oxagon is its own company. And you said the CEO was there. Just interesting. It's like a show of, not not show of support, I guess, but a show of, hey, like, we're all doing this. This is, you know, this isn't just pie in the sky. And, you know, we're serious about this. And the evidence is on the ground. There's also buy-in from the people in Saudi Arabia from a, I mean, just from a real estate standpoint, that's one of the hottest destinations now, or at least one of the most sought after destinations for real estate in Saudi Arabia. People want to live in Neom because it sounds awesome. Um, yeah, you know, the issue of it's going to be accepted, you know, because high net worth individuals really are interested in that. It'd be interesting to see, um, 
you know, what they eventually end up with in terms of housing. Um, you know, they're talking about 100,000 people there uh, by 20, I mean, ultimately, I think maybe even more than that, uh, 70,000 jobs, everything done in an ESG and a, a livability and a, and a carbon neutral approach so it's like i said if you if if you didn't think it was serious before i think you'd 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 lean to it being serious now my one big thing this week richard drones if you remember we were one of the first to be able to fly a drone in saudi arabia back in 2015 before they were really everywhere and we we can talk about it now (laughs) well we didn't crash the drone which is like the biggest most important thing that we did um but uh, now they're really everywhere, and Saudi Arabia is seeking to, seeking to ramp up its investing in manufacturing and exporting drones from the kingdom. This is according to Saudi Arabia's intra-defense technology CEO, Abdul Salam Gamdi, in an interview with Ashark al-Assad. In that interview, Gamdi revealed details of the Samum medium-altitude long-endurance UAV. Intra-defense technologies introduced the drone at the inaugural World Defense Show in Riyadh last month. It is the first strategic unmanned aircraft that is being designed and developed and will be manufactured in Saudi Arabia. Quote, Samum's operational endurance allows it to conduct up to 50-hour reconnaissance missions with the UAV flying at up to 45,000 feet. Uh, Gamdi revealed, adding it could be ready to serve the Saudi armed forces by 2024. I chose this story as my one big thing this week, Richard, in part because it was such a cool rabbit hole to go down to, go down into, like, um, there, first of all, Saudi. This is not the first drone that has been produced in Saudi Arabia. Uh, its other UAV, Intra's other UAV, the Haboob, is a license-built version of the Turkish Karayel Su, a type that has already seen action over Yemen with Saudi forces. The Haboob has flown more than 23,000 23, operational hours. Gamdi noted that Saudi Arabia is quote at an important stage in the process of digital transformation across various fields. And this provides the infrastructure needed for making great strides in the field of UAE, sorry, UAV production. Of course, this is all in line with the kingdom's stated goal of localizing 50% of government military spending as part of its wider Vision 2030. And I think when that figure was announced, it seemed a little far-fetched given how much defense and security-related hardware and technologies that Saudi Arabia already imports. What I think is interesting in this story, it's almost buried, is an updated figure on that progress. According to Gamdi, who was appointed as CEO of the company just a few weeks ago, I should say elevated to the position of CEO, he said that during the past four years, the localization rate grew from 2% in 2016 to 12% by the end of 2021. Hmm. So there is some progress here. Some. Um, Real progress. I I guess I, I could wrap this story up with that. I mean, just thinking about Saudi Arabia as a as a commercial drone producer just a few years ago, I mean, seemed kind of crazy. And it looks like they're on track here. And I couldn't get to the bottom of, of whether or not Intra is owned by the PIF or if it's owned by GAMI. Um, not a lot of clarity there, but their presence at the um, World Defense Show in Saudi Arabia was impressive, like quite impressive. Had the full drone in there inside the, the purpose-built space. Um, and you'll for YouTube video uh, YouTube video viewers will see some of the the b-roll here from of, of the drone. Really cool stuff. I think it adds to this is is a fascinating story, Lucian. And and uh, drones are like the gateway gateway weapon of uh, in defense industries. You know, you can you can build that drone. But also, it's been interesting in in the private sector. Drones, 
there's a number of companies in Saudi that have have started a drone business because it's a great way to monitor, for example, you know, uh, large scale petrochemical uh, plants or or refineries or you know agricultural things. You can instead of sending a man out to check on something at you know on a on a on a storage, you know storage tank you can send a drone out and take a look at it so mm-hmm. i mean it's a, it's a growing business intra is a really good story because uh, to your point it is a homegrown company it's a private homegrown company it's not piff oriented it's a just it's a saudi company mm. and uh you know it's headquartered in riyadh has 110 employees operating from two bases one in the south and one in the east you know they they did uh, they hope to get to 500 employees by 2024. This is you know this is exactly what you want to see if you're the Saudi in terms of diversifying the economy and building a you know this sector. Uh, I guess they had they got a license from Gami uh, to manufacture in Saudi in 2019, uh, and they've been bumping along. They mm-hmm. they did. Um, they you know their initial plan was to do about 20 aircraft a year, but the, you know the demand blew up, and they're now aiming for 50. And according to the CEO, by the end of the f- end of next year, they'll be looking at 70. So it's a uh, it's a great story, and it's pretty cool that you know they've they they've upscaled as you say to the Samoom, and uh, and are looking to you know expand on the defense industry side. We'll have to get Mr. Gamdi on the on the program here at some point. Um, you're right, a, a homegrown private company success story in the defense space, growing steadily, just really cool. Okay, <laughs> let's get to nice one. Our, That's a good one. Thank you. Let's get to our conversation with Philip Cornell. You're gonna love this. Really, really smart guy. Um, we're talking all about energy, um, the energy transition. We go into oil, strategic petroleum reserve, and we're going. We, we cover a lot, so um, we'll get right to it here. Here's our conversation with Philip Cornell. We're pleased to be speaking now with Philip Cornell, a specialist on energy and foreign policy, energy security strategy, and Saudi Arabia with the Global Energy Center at the Atlantic Council. Philip, thank you so much for joining us today on the Nine Six Six. Thanks very much, Lucian. It's nice to be here, Phil. You know, uh, you're such a, a humble and unassuming guy. I wouldn't have, you know, if you don't look at your bio, you don't understand how impressive your background is. So, so let me do this real quickly because the initial impetus uh, to get together uh, was that you are senior editor and principal for energy and sustainability at the Economist Impact Unit. And you're also, you, you, this unit recently put out a sizing of the energy tra- transition. I guess it was in October 2021, a fascinating uh, a project and report. And you were project director and co-author of that. And I recommend it not only because it's, it's, it's a really good read, because it also comes with a really useful infographic version. <laughs> <laughs> in addition to the, uh, Shortest read. <laughs> the actual report. And I want to thank you for that as, as, you know, as senior editor and project director for providing the infographic. That alone is worth it. But, uh, but you know, in addition to, to, to you know, you work at the EIU, you know, as, as Lucian mentioned, your Atlantic Council, Global Energy Center, but your background is deep. Uh, you've been at Saudi Aramco, you've been at the International Energy Agency, you've been with NATO, Naval Postgraduate School, Royal United uh, Services Institute in London, uh, Center for International Security and Cooperation, Stanford, uh, and of course, a fellow graduate of Johns Hopkins SICE. Uh, but it's just extraordinary. So so I want to come back. We, we talked a little bit yesterday. I want to end with that sizing the energy transition 
and aspects of that. I want to start with your extremely considerate move of traveling to the Emirates and uh, attending and participating in a number of conferences and meetings just so you could bring that information to the 966 podcast. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the tone and the temper in the Emirates at this very fraught moment, uh, both in the, globally with the Ukraine uh, situation, the, the global energy issues, and also, of course, the relationship with the U.S.? Sure, Richard. Thanks. <clears throat> it's always happy to be. I'm happy to be the and a 966 roving uh, reporter abroad for you. Um, yeah, no, listen, uh, this was uh, this was a really interesting trip. It's been a really busy couple of weeks, uh, uh, I think, across the region, at least on sort of the, you know, global meeting uh, scene. Um, you know, this uh, started with a couple of weeks ago. There was the uh, Doha Forum uh, in Qatar. Um, and then last week uh, in Dubai, there was both the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Forum, um, and that was also kind of held within the same venue as the uh, World Government Summit uh, that the UAE put on um, that was talking about sort of all sorts of future of uh, the economy and governance. And of course, this was all, you know, right on the on the premises of Expo 2020, which was in its last week. So it was all of this kind of denouement. Uh, that had been planned for a while. Um, but it was also really well-timed for big events uh, that have been going on in the world. I mean, it's been a, it's been a busy first quarter in 2022 uh, right across the board. And I would say, you know, to your point, um, the feeling in the region um, was one of a lot of confidence, I think, given their sort of positioning right now. Now, we all know that you know, uh, in the context of the Ukraine conflict um, and the effective removal of barrels from the market as a result of self-sanctioning on parts of some oil companies, and also just a lot of trepidation about what actual sanctions are and how they're going to develop when it comes to Russian energy. There's been a lot of calls to those countries where spare capacity exists. And in reality, you know, that's really Saudi and the UAE and a couple of others in OPEC, but those are the big ones. Uh, from uh, Western governments, including from Washington, to up uh, production. And those have been pretty much rebuffed. Um, and so the meetings that were happening now about, you know, the resurgence of the importance of energy security, um, what does, you know, cooperation uh, between the West and the Gulf look like around energy and energy supply, um, and how has that changed, I think, was really kind of at the forefront. Um, you know, for let's say a lot of people i think that are in the u.s government right now or in this current administration <clears throat> i think there was kind of a you know across the board hope for a return to quote unquote normalcy uh from you know before the last administration <clears throat> um and i think that between that and covid um the real changes that have gone on in the world and particularly in the relationship uh between the u.s and sort of its gulf partners over the past five years, maybe wasn't fully, it hadn't, hadn't fully been grasped until this moment. Um, and, you know, listening to uh, uh, Al-Masuri, uh, uh, you know, Minister of Energy of the UAE, and also uh, Prince Abdulaziz, his counterpart in Saudi Arabia, um, their approach to this sort of ask, um, I think, was, you know, pretty direct. It was you know, we're not going to politicize uh, energy production in OPEC. 
you know, we uh, don't see a physical oil disruption going on, uh, even though, you know, I think the reality is that's kind of a lame excuse. There's at least about a million and a half barrels off the market functionally as a result of self-sanctioning. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, um, you know, we, again, this is not something that we want to politicize. I think that those were the f- official kind of explanations. Um, but underlying those were a lot of frustrations that had been building up uh, for a long time over the past uh, several years and also coming to a sort of culminating, uh, you know, most recently, uh, well, well, we can work backwards, you know, uh, most recently was this sense of the U.S. in particular not playing such an effective role in terms of guaranteeing regional security as it could, particularly around the missile strikes uh, on civilian targets that were sent uh, by the Houthis, uh, both on UAE and Saudi soil. Um, uh, You know, further back from there uh, was also, I think the, you know, if we look at COP26, uh, a kind of aggressive uh, rhetoric um, that was not just pro-energy transition, but sometimes really kind of anti-oil, anti-producer, um, you know, they made it very clear that they had been made to feel unwelcome uh, at, at COP26. Uh, and, you know, the, the, this, sort of, um, this sort of process that a lot of Western countries have been going through of dealing with the energy transition first by sort of attacking, you know, the bad guys or making it into a good guy, bad guy thing and saying, okay, we're now going to put lots of pressure on fossil fuel producers before having actually, you know, had, you know, made the transition both on the demand side or on whatever kind of alternative uh, uh, fuel side happen uh, means that, you know, we're, we're kind of in a bind now. Um, But it means that that has also in a political sense has, has, has sort of fallen on, on regional producers. Um, And I would say, you know, look, this also follows an entire decade of what we have considered to what we've lived through in terms of energy abundance on the back of uh, unconventional uh, oil and gas uh, in production in the US um, and sort of this idea of, that's helped to create fertile ground for the idea that the energy transition could happen relatively quickly, relatively painlessly, at least in the way that we sometimes describe this to voters. Um, and I think a broader kind of sense that in the context of this energy transition, that maybe you know the relationship with the Middle East is not as central as it was before, or maybe not as critical as it had been before. Um, and I think that those noises have been falling on the region for a long time. And this is really a moment uh, to say, look, now you know energy security is back. Uh, we need you know you need cooperation in terms of the the energy market. Um, and you know I think that that was that that puts them in a position where going into all, also by the way. Um, a big super cycle of commodities, including energy, that's going to last for a couple of years. Um, they're feeling strong, not only in sort of their, you know, revenue base when it comes to traditional fossil fuels, but also in the successes and the advances of their programs to transition away from energy that was sort of, you know, uh, driven by that period in the mid middle of the last decade where. You know, revenues were much lower. It was clearly a, an urgent need to move on. Um, and all of the investments that they've been putting in into 
advanced technology uh, into also clean tech and, and clean energy uh, industry, all these kind of future industries that were, by the way, really on display uh, at Expo 2020. Um, between the confidence in the future and the confidence in how their economy is doing now, I think that they felt very much in a position to say, you know, we're not going to walk away from a deal with Russia that, by the way, is kind of, you know, for someone like Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, was kind of a, a personal project in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, we're not going to turn uh, we're not going to turn our production strategy just on the basis of uh, Western geopolitical decisions. So this was kind of the sense that we all came into this, the, the region with. So a lot of confidence, a lot of optimism, but feeling that strength to be able to kind of put their foot down after uh, quite a couple of years and, and particularly this year of feeling snubbed. It's interesting to hear you uh, frame it that way, Phil. I see it very much uh, a sense of really um, uh, growing confidence. Uh, and you look at you look at uh, Saudi Arabia, you're talking about the Emirates, but you're talking about Saudi Arabia too. And you look at the arc of, of MBS from, from when King Salman became king in 2015, uh, when when uh, MBS was named Crown Prince in June twenty in, in June twenty seventeen, when you look at each, this, the crises they were going through, uh, twenty seventeen you had the Qatar diplomatic crisis, uh, twenty seventeen you had the, the Rich Carlton detention, um, twenty eighteen, you know the VAT was introduced, which was was controversial and quite daring, as we recall. The IMF was stunned. You know, I said, "Why are you doing?" You know, well, you're you're at five percent initially but then when they jumped it up in 2020 to 15 percent that's quite aggressive and of course in 2018 Jamal Khashoggi was murdered so so you have a very bumpy period but uh, you know what you have now in Saudi Arabia and we're just looking at Saudi Arabia is coming out of a really well handled COVID pandemic a, a really expanding healthy non-oil economy of course as you said uh, you know a, a super cycle in terms of commodities and oil in particular tremendous amount of confidence uh, a sense at least at least in Saudi Arabia I think from the leadership that okay we're, we're making some real strides we've done some significant things on the social side um, we're looking quite good especially as compared to how bleak things looked in in late 2014 in yeah. terms of our budget and everything else. And it, it appears to have given them a comfort level to turn and look at the U.S. and say, hey, we have some issues with the way you, you, you look at this relationship. We think it's outdated. Mm -hmm. We think it's a bit reactionary. And we think you're taking us for granted. Yeah. Um, you know, I think some of the, the sort of phrases that I heard bandied about um, sort of off the record were things like, you know, very great, great friends, but are we still allies, you know, as we were previously? And that's a huge break, right? Uh, that's a, that's a, that's a huge change in tone. Um, and, and I think you're, I think you're exactly right. I mean, if you look at, you know, talk to younger people, uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, in the UAE for a long time, but in Saudi Arabia, particularly over the last, you know, four years or so, um, there's a huge amount of optimism in terms of the growth that's happening inside the kingdom, physical changes to infrastructure and daily life, uh, which is just so different uh, than it was, you know, when I last lived there in 2016. I mean, it's just a, it's a completely changed landscape. 
Um, and yeah, I think a, a lot of this gives rise to this idea. Look, if our future uh, in the non-oil economy is focused on these sort of critical areas around uh, cyber, around artificial intelligence, around uh, high technologies, um, around uh, uh, high tech, clean energy. Um, I think there's also a question, you know, are there other partners out there uh, that can support that kind of growth in a way that the sort of traditional partnership with the US um, might not be able to, right? And that's sort of a <clears throat> fundamental questioning of, um, uh, of, you know, the US capacity to lead, even in those kind of high tech areas where we, um, where we're, I think the US has been a leader out of Silicon Valley for a long time, but there's a lot of uh, serious competitors, you know, not just in China, um, but even in, you know, smaller other players uh, that can lend uh, aid to that development on a more ad hoc basis. And I'm thinking about places like Israel, and you saw sort of the, you know, the the meeting in the Negev that happened last week, where Anthony Anthony Blinken uh, seemed like almost a not an afterthought, but sort of you know the last guest invited, um, mm -hmm. and sort of the the the, the kind of um, body language, you know, between uh, between the UAE and, and, and Israel in particular, you can see that there's new partnerships that are out there. Um, and that kind of transactionalism um, is something I think that they're becoming more comfortable with. Um, and that includes in the relationship with the US. And, and I, you know, I think if you, again, going back to that kind of mindset shift, which is perhaps coming slightly later to Washington, um, I think that's also because, as I said, you have people, I think, inside the administration, really, even just at sort of working level that have come in with the administration that for whom, you know, Saudi Arabia is kind of an, it's sort of the old, they have thinking of old cliches of Saudi Arabia, right? right. And so things like human rights, things like Khashoggi is very, you know, front of mind in terms of central in the relationship on something like that. Um, and I think now it's coming to the moment where they realize, okay, that, you know, that partnership is a little bit more complex and um, and it's perhaps not as one-sided as things had seemed uh, at the end in the middle of the last decade. Well, it's a question I've asked a number of times on this podcast is, is, is there anybody in the U.S. government who is uh, advocating for, for a, a change of perspective and, and, a, and a better effort at trying to meet these economies, these regimes where they are now? Uh, not where they have been, and not not based entirely on our our past uh, paradigms of of energy and security. Um, so on that side, I, I've been disappointed with the U.S. approach, and I think Biden, as you say, that, that that administration has been playing catch up, and they you know a lot of envoys are going out there, and I think trying to understand, and you know why are you so upset, and 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 I think from the the, the regional perspective is going, well, what do you mean? Why are we so upset? Why aren't you paying attention? You know, it, why are you surprised we're upset after, you know, a whole series of, of what we think we are, are faux pas and strategic mistakes and basically ignoring us? Um, on the flip side, is there any, was there any discussion in, in, in your visits and your talks about the sort of trying to square the circle in that the fact is these countries, these, these regimes, um, UAE, Saudi Arabia, really need the global legal order that is advocated and sustained in many parts by the United States in order for them to thrive. 
while at the same time they're they're very attracted to the economic uh, uh, sort of um, we'll leave you alone. We're not worried about anything else. Transactional nature that you get with uh, China in particular. Same sort of thing with Russia in different different fields. So yes, they see it as a multinational world. But as we mentioned the other day, you know, if if this were a Russian global order, UAE wouldn't exist. It would have been annexed. You know, Kuwait obviously would be a province of 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 a, a, a rock. Rock. Mm-hmm. Um, has the has the discussion gotten to that point, or is it still at this point grievance? You know, you're yeah. not paying attention. So also, so answer to sort of the two comments you made. I mean, on the first one, I definitely do think that there are people uh, in the U.S. government that know the region well, that have seen this trans- transformation, um, uh, and you know they they exist. Um, but you know, there and I think a lot of the uh, missteps that were taken as slights, particularly earlier this year, um, a lot of them were kind of own goals on the side of the Biden administration. I mean, I think they were just. Problems in how they in how they communicate and how they you know show up and show uh, you know you know sh- sh- show the the Saudis in particular and the UAE the gravity uh, that they take the attacks uh, to to have been and I think when they realized you know how um, how egregious that was kind of seen to be on the part of in, in the region they tried to as you say play catch up right so they send in f-35s a little bit late uh they sent uh you know envoys over a little bit late um and um so i i, I don't think i mean i think that there, again that there's sort of a, a, a dawning and a realization that's happening I, I think it's just it's kind of more missteps than it is something that's sort of um that's too structural um <clears throat> on the other side yeah absolutely look um there's no question that the uh, expansion uh, of, of of sort of the regional economy, both during the period of relatively high oil prices in the first decade of the 21st century, but also in terms of the big changes that we've seen in the in the second decade, um, given particularly all the mobilization of not only capital but also uh, sort of technology transfer and investment by uh, by by Western companies. You know, a lot of that has absolutely been facilitated by an overall kind of uh, legal geopolitical order um, in which the U.S. maintains uh, some, you know, some kind of sense of, you know, the, the international system as it stands. Um, the I think the idea that, yeah, sort of an international system without that kind of organization, one that's, you know, because all of this is happening in the context of, the sense of deglobalization, right? The sense that trade barriers are going up for different reasons, you know, all across the world. Uh, I would say, you know, you have on one side, uh, at least when it comes to energy, you know, on one side you have from sort of the sort of security aspect and sort of I think more the conservative side, you might have questions, you know, can we do business with X, Y, and Z kind of political entities? Should we be imposing sanctions, you know, as a as a, as a as a strong measure of uh, geopolitical leverage and you know, what we've been doing to Russia has been a sign that we will, you know, that that can happen at a very high level with a very large uh, economy. Um, but also it's coming from the other side, from sort of the climate uh, con- concern when we think about uh, the rise of uh, carbon border adjustment mechanisms or, you know, uh, carbon tariffs. Um, and so for all these reasons, we're starting 
starting to differentiate between trading partners and between different kinds of, you know, the, the cleanliness of certain products. So what's clean oil or dirtier oil, or clean energy or dirtier energy um, in trade in a way that hadn't been the case previously. So, you know, what does that world look like? Um, and, and, and how do you, uh, and how do you sort of choose your trading partners? I think you're exactly right that, you know, um, some of the alternatives, uh, including the Chinese, I mean, we've seen the way that, you know, particularly in the context of Belt and Road, um, that, uh, you know, they, they come with a lot of good investment. Uh, and if I'm just thinking about the energy space, you know, providing, um, I think all of smart meters in Saudi Arabia, buying up, you know, half of the Omani power grid, um, huge, obviously, you know, investments in uh, other kind of chemicals and, and infrastructure um, in the region. Often those comes with strings, whether they're, uh, you know, whether they're visible or, or less visible. Um, and they certainly come with, uh, it, they come with strings around credit uh, that can, uh, that can, you know, cause sort of problems about political leverage going forward. And that's what has been, you know, instigating uh, the sort of, again, maybe a little bit catch up move um, from the US in terms of uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy, in terms of standing up uh, a stronger uh, uh, DFC uh, in order to sort of have our own strategy about how we help countries to finance infrastructure build and, and technology advancement. Um, so I, I think that there's two models out there. One certainly, uh, I think, provides a more sort of long-term, I mean, if you're going to get in bed with a superpower, I think still better to be in bed with the U.S. Um, but the alternatives there are there, and they're attractive. Uh, and I think that you know, at least from the point of view of Washington, that's not something that we can ignore. Well, it is fascinating when you bring up uh, so many different uh, factors, like ESG, you know, and, and how that changes uh, investment perspectives. And we are, it seems, at a pivot point where there's. Uh, a, I, it, I don't want to make light of it. It's not. It's not like marriage counseling, but we're at a pivot point in a relationship where communication has not been good. <clears throat> Expectations for one party in particular have changed, and uh, you know some attention needs to be paid to this. And, and, and your reference to the IEA, um, uh, EIA. I'm sorry. No, the I. Yeah, the IEA is interesting because. Saudi Arabia, for example, just recently sort of excluded it from their basket of of uh, analysis that they're going to use for their pricing and that sort of thing. You know, th there's five now, seven that they pull from us. So it's no big deal. But in the past, they would have sort of just sucked it up and said, you know, okay, we're not appreciative of the way you're looking at us. We don't think your 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 recommendation that there be no investment in in uh, oil and gas in order for us to achieve, you know, uh, zero emissions by a certain date is helpful. Um, we don't like how you've dismissed our, uh, you know, circular carbon economy ideas and, and carbon capture initiatives and that sort of thing. And in the past, they might have just sort of gone, okay, well, that's kind of irritating, but we're not going to say anything. No longer. Yeah, well, <clears throat> look, I mean, we also have to accept that this conversation has been accelerating in the West uh, a lot in very recent, in a, in a short amount of time, um, particularly in Europe, but also here. So, you know, you mentioned ESG. I mean, if, you know, looking forward into 2022, I mean, the, the you know, the degree to which corporate leaders are now um, uh, are, are under pressure and under, I wouldn't say beholden, but under a lot of pressure from shareholders, from consumers, from investors, from various stakeholders 
to adopt extremely ambitious uh, uh, sort of climate targets um, and now are having to figure out exactly how to, to make those happen and to implement is causing a lot of changes. And it starts in the energy industry, right? I mean, just from a legal perspective around ESG, the kind of pressures you know, that you've seen, um, for example, uh, sort of new legal definitions um, uh, that have driven cases like in Holland, you know, against Shell, mm, uh, right. where they became legally responsible to 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 reduce sort of carbon, um, have led a lot of those companies to actually make strategies that are going to reduce their oil and gas output as well as shift to alternative technologies. Um, that's again great over the longer run, uh, as you said, it kind of plays into this IEA net zero narrative that we should not need new investment if we went on this net zero. I mean, I think that comment in the World Energy Outlook has been mistaken a lot in the press uh, for saying, you know, we, we should not be uh, investing anymore, but it's saying if we go on this path properly, no new investment should be needed, if, if, but we're not on that pathway properly. Mm -hmm. um, and that because we're not attacking the demand side, you know, the growth of alternatives is not rising as fast as it should. And so as we decrease the supply willingly, uh, out of the sort of IOCs and from the West, um, what it's actually doing is just putting more, much more market share mm -hmm. over the next 10 years um, to producers that are willing to invest. Um, and what it means, you know, and I would couple that also, by the way, with um, uh, with capital discipline that we see sort of in the, in the unconventional oil patch uh, in the US. And, you know, that's not because of any kind of regulations that the Biden administration is putting on at all. It's literally just producers there who got really burned when they recycled a lot of their revenues into new production um, a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And so now they'd much rather pay it out in dividends and just sort of take the cautious route. And that means that the only investment that's will it, that's that's going to happen is in places like in the in, in in OPEC, where investments have been going in strong because they do see uh, a long term viability for those investments, or at least a medium term viability for those investments through this super cycle and even after the super cycle, as they start to have a much bigger part of maybe a shrinking pie. Even that is unsure, right? I mean, even two years ago, BP was saying this could be the demand plateau. We might've reached, uh, you know, uh, uh, that sort of point. Doesn't look to be the case. And that was also coming up, by the way, last week uh, in all the discussions with the oil market. Demand just keeps rising. And uh, so it sort of gives them a chance to sit pretty. Yeah, these national oil companies, especially Saudi Arabia and UAE, who are expanding crude oil production, um, must look around and go, oh my goodness, this is quite the, the sweet spot, you know, with shale, still on the sidelines well it's expanding but you know you know slowly getting off the sidelines and 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 you're right you know the the um the IEA you know and their in their scenarios even by 2050 you still have what 25 million barrels a day you know of, of crude oil oh, being produced. 40 maybe yeah a lot all right so so let's do this I know we have limited time with you Phil so I want to get to it because you you you're not only you do a a very good job in sort of doing big picture stuff, you also do a, a very, you're always very informed on the mechanical stuff, the actual, the pragmatic, you know, execution. And so uh, the IEA, I think their uh, prediction of the Russian oil production slump is 3 million barrels a day. I think as you're talking about, it's more like 1.5 million barrels a day. But with that aside, 
The U.S. just announced that uh, its allies are going to deploy another 60 million barrels out of their strategic petroleum reserves to add to the U.S. 100 million, 180 million barrel commitment. Uh, And I guess that's a million barrels a day from the U.S. and then add another 60. Uh, Will this make much of an impact? Yeah. So, um, yes. I mean, you know, what we have now are strategic stocks. That's sort of I mean, I when I was at the IEA, I was running sort of basically wargaming for uh, fossil fuel supply crises, right? And you basically got three tools. You got your strategic stocks, uh, you have fuel switching, and you have sort of management of demand. Um, and strategic stocks are the first place to go. Uh, as you said, just yesterday, we heard that um, the, the international community is going to add 60 million uh, barrels on top of the U.S., 60 million barrels in this release, and that's on top of the, uh, the release that the U.S. announced a couple of weeks ago. Um, it will make a big difference. Uh, it has sort of shifted oil prices a little bit, um, but you know, over the long run, this is there's only a certain amount of reserves that are there, um, and we are, you know, this is always the question about how you use strategic stocks. We're also, um, you know, we got to leave some dry powder there uh, because the uh, the impact and the market impact of using that tool diminishes as sort of the size of the stock gets smaller. So, and as you know, the the, the outlook for how long the crisis is going to last, and that's really what our problem is right now, uh, Richard. It's you know that the outlook is so uncertain about how long this crisis is going to last. What does a post crisis um, market look like and what is sort of the post-crisis political arrangement look like, particularly with the Russians? Um, And in the much shorter term, what are sanctions actually going to look like going forward, right? So, you know, we we talk about this 1.5-ish million barrels a day just of self-sanctioning, but the Europeans are getting together again and right now they're debating what is the next step. And particularly after the latest round of clear war crimes coming out of Ukraine, there's a whole lot of pressure to address uh, energy import, Russian energy imports, uh, and whether to ban them, right? Which is a pretty extreme move, which had huge impacts, uh, particularly on the gas side uh, for European consumers. Um, but you know, in the meantime, what can we do? Sort of, you know, maybe to, to not maybe not ban Russian oil. Are there sort of intermediary steps? I put out, uh, and we put out uh, from the Atlantic Council. A, uh, a proposition about this about three weeks ago uh, at the very early stages of the crisis about the viability uh, of a oil import tariff, a punitive oil import tariff on the Russians. One of several different options of how we can basically keep the molecules flowing to the market while basically cutting off the rent to the Russian state. But the point here is we don't know, right? If we go to a full ban, we could be talking about a much larger impact in terms of global uh, oil production and uh, and oil onto the market. And also uh, a much longer, you know, if that also carries over into a gas, uh, maybe on the part of the Russians, you know, they, they ban their own gas from going to Russia to European consumers, then something that lasts much longer, potentially into next year. So the market is grappling with this kind of uncertainty. And this is one of the reasons why the administration wanted so much to get positive noises, at least, um, out of Gulf partners to kind of calm the market. I mean, we saw, you know, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, comments by an ambassador, Saudi ambassador, um, that maybe they would consider something. Uh, and right away, you know, prices dropped uh, almost 10 bucks. So the market's on tender hooks waiting for any kind of signal about what's coming next. And I think that's really what's driving, driving a lot of the high prices now. So even if you release strategic stocks, it gives people a little, okay, at least there's a backstop. 
Uh, but the market is, you know, still looking at everything from, uh, uh, you know, everything from just basically things finishing relatively soon to pretty bad case scenarios down the line. Um, and I think that's really what's causing a lot of the problem. Yeah, and you can see why uh, you know OPEC Plus or not 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 the Russians, but you know the Saudis and the Emiratis, you know, are are inclined to stand pat at the moment because mm-hmm. they don't know hard to, hard to predict. So let's right. talk about the European situation <clears throat> and uh, the U.S. President Biden recently agreed with the EU to to try and provide an additional 15 billion cubic tons of LNG through the remainder of 2022 and uh, eventually increasing supply to Europe to 15 billion cubic tons annually through 2030. Um, can Is that possible? Can we do that? Yeah, well, so what we're really talking about is, you know, the Europeans are, again, trying to, on the gas side, trying to grapple with different kind of scenarios that might come out of the Russian situation. And given that, you know, Russia supplies about 40% of um, of European gas, that means that uh, that cutting it off altogether would have massive implications, particularly in Eastern and and Eastern European and Central European economies uh, that really re- rely on that. I think that there's an irony here that you know countries like Poland or the Baltics or some in Southeast Europe that would actually you know where 100 percent of their gas is coming from Gazprom are some of the most gung ho about a full gas mm-hmm. ban. Um, and so what we're actually talking about here is Germany and the German voter yeah. uh, and this question about whether, you know, they sort of wring their hands about whether a full uh, gas import ban would raise prices so much uh, on German consumers that it would turn them against support for Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. Now, let's not, you know, mince words, European gas prices have been off the chart in the last couple of months, mm-hmm. um, again, just based on this kind of uh, panic. Right, like people saying, get any cargos we can now and lock them in. Um, and on an oil barrel equivalent, that's driven sort of German border prices for gas up to like six hundred bucks a barrel or something like that, just to give you an idea of that of that growth. I mean, it's totally decoupled from the realities of the market, which is why you've seen a lot of questions about a what do we do in the case that this happens, and that's uh, and how do we affect the market in the short term. So, what do you do in the case that it happens? Again, I talked about those three tools you have for a supply crisis. Well, you know, the Europeans have come out with a plan, at least by the end of the year, they think that they can reduce uh, the import, their reliance on Russian imports by like two thirds. Um, that was on top of an IEA plan that had come out a couple of days earlier about how to reduce it by about a third. So the Europeans were much more ambitious. Most of that is taking LNG cargos, rerouting LNG cargos off the market. So one of the things that the U.S. has been doing along with Europeans is going around to producers like the Qataris, um, but also very much to other uh, consumers. So mostly that's sort of the Japanese and a lot of other Asian consumers um, in order to reroute some of those cargoes, you know, because these are often on long term contracts. There's a little bit of spot LNG, but it's a very thin part of the market. And how do we think about rerouting those? So part of that Biden agreement with the Russians was you know, a lot of that was rerouted LNG cargoes that they thought they could get over to Europe. Part of that, you know, and so then we talk about there's short term, there's medium term, long term. In the short term, you reroute those cargoes and there's only so much that you can do. And even if, you know, the prices might go up, but it's basically that means that Europeans are outbidding what Bangladeshis, right. uh, you know, ties like this gas is still needed in other part of the world. And I think one of the sad parts of this entire crisis 
is that we're not talking about the huge ripple effects that are happening in the developed world, uh, developing world, developing countries uh, in terms of inflated food prices, inflated energy prices, lack of access to these things because rich countries in a panic are going to start siphoning them off. Um, so let's remember that when we think about extra cargoes that we're bringing into Europe. In the more medium term, we are, you know, increasing LNG production in the U.S. And this is, you know, the U.S. is obviously trying to position itself, uh, or at least a lot of the U.S. sector, as the new strategic supplier, right? If the if the Russians, if the Europe, because Europe is going to try to wean themselves on Russian gas, despite what happens. I mean, even in the best case scenario in Russia, a lot of European countries and, and like we're done with Russian gas. Um, so the U.S. becomes a new, hey, we got all this LNG that we can bring to the market. There's a lot more that's going to be coming online in the next year or two. Um, the U.S. is going to be the largest LNG uh, exporter by the end of the year. Um, so some of the some of it comes from there, but that's more of a one, two, three, four year kind of outlook. Um, and so, yeah, the Europeans are trying to deal with this crisis at the same time as they're trying to as trying to think about how do they wean themselves off Russian gas, let's say by 2025, 2026, 2030. Um, and there the U.S. does end up playing a big role. I think that's a really uh, good point you make about the knock-on effects, and and you know we we're focused on the the cost in the EU, but the cost increased globally and to to uh, economies that can't handle it nearly as well as the EU. So yeah. we've got a limited amount of time for you, about ten minutes. I want to do as I promised and get back to your that EIU report on sizing the energy transition, which I think is outstanding, and I recommend it to everybody. And I want to I want to point out that one of the reasons I think it was really fascinating is that it it does two things. One, it puts a number to how much investment is needed in certain sectors, and two, it uh, really emphasizes that. Uh, a, a tremendous number of new jobs and new types of jobs will be created by this transition. So I think it's a useful read. So, but and and I, and I, and again, I want to I want to plug it. You know, it, it talks about the power sector. It talks about greening the steel sector. It talks about driving decarbonization. But we're going to skip to clean hydrogen, and that's uh, because it's something that uh, you know Saudi Arabia is quite interested in, and uh, I. I think I mentioned I was just up at the Neon Roadshow in, in New York City earlier this week. One of the sessions was on hydrogen, and, and um, separately, Aqua, uh, you know, one of the leading power companies, is involved in the hydrogen, green hydrogen project with Air Products of the U.S. In Neom, just said they just announced a, um, a $900 million EPC contract to start the process. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give us an, you know, and 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 in a corollary uh, in blue hydrogen, you know, Saudi Arabia is just is going to invest some sixty billion dollars in the Jafura gas plant that uh, is expected to be a significant producer of blue hydrogen using carbon capture methods. So they're heavy into it. They really want to go hard into it. They believe there's a cycle here that they can they can take advantage of and and come out on the other side as a leading hydrogen, global hydrogen producer. What's what's your take on all this? Yeah, um, well, thanks for mentioning uh, the report, the Sizing the Energy Transition Report. Um, so we, you know, we produced this basically in the run-up to COP26 for the Energy Transition Council, which is sort of a, a worldwide entity, entity that was attached to the COP process. Um, and what we did was look at kind of a net zero scenario uh, and think about what you know, what, what are the macroeconomic impacts that this kind of pathway can have 
uh, for countries. And we look specifically at the G7, um, uh, uh, as well as uh, China, uh, India, and South Africa. Um, and when it comes to, you know, and we saw, for example, that there was, you know, over 20 million jobs just in those four sectors that you, ma- you mentioned, you know, 4% of additional GDP. So it's a hugely expensive process, but one where the gains, you know, the gains in terms of jobs, in terms of, uh, in terms of increased value and growth are certainly there. I think that in the, you know, in the, re- in the, in the, in the Gulf region, uh, as you mentioned, this has been sort of taken on board. And we talked earlier about, you know, the, 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 the big, um, progress that's been made in, on the clean energy space and how they're sort of banking a lot of their future growth on clean energy, both on, you know, uh, renewable generation and, mm-hmm. with, you know, but between Aquapower, Mazdar, I mean, they're producing some of the, you know, lowest, lowest costs. I mean, we're almost breaking one cent per kilowatt bids mm-hmm. uh, for big utility scale uh, uh, renewable energy, but also, as you mentioned, on hydrogen, um, uh, which, by the way, when we talk about the number of jobs, and we do this in this report that comes from big uh, investments into hydrogen, most of that is actually in the renewable energy generation that you need to actually power uh, the interesting to, to power the electrolyzers. If we're talking about green hydrogen, so the, so the the four billion, you know, the four gigawatts of, of renewable energy required to produce energy is going to produce more jobs in the actual hydrogen production. Right, exactly. So if you, so, you know, you mentioned the four gigawatt. Uh, number. I mean, that's basically to power the neon uh, green hydrogen project that's under that's under discussion, under construction now. Um, and precisely, I mean, you know, you, just in order to run that one green hydrogen project, um, you're going to have to put in the equivalent, basically, of. I mean, if we look at the beginning of 2021, there was a few hundred megawatts of yeah. installed, uh, you know, utility scale solar in Saudi Arabia. Um, Five, 500, 500 megawatts. And I think they're up to, yeah. uh, they just, they just, they just may have just cracked five gigawatts by the end of this year. Yeah. Well, that's growing really fast, right? So between um, the Rabeg and Jeddah uh, facilities that are going to, the sort of, sort of, photovoltaic IPPs that are going to be coming online uh, just this year. Um, but then Sudair, right, which is 1.5 gigawatts, um, producing at like 1.2 cents per kilowatt hour, so also at a pretty low uh, amount. I mean, that's going to be coming online as well uh, in, in, in the next few years. And Saudi wants to produce half of its electricity from clean energy by 2030, uh, right. which is a, a big, it's a big lift, but, you know, they're on the way there. Their, their their goal is 15 gigawatts by the end of 2023, and and we we had a nice conversation with Adam Samitsky at at Capsark, former head of Capsark, and he was saying, you know, it, it once it gets going, it's not linear. Okay. It it you know they've got a number of projects, and they they feel like they'll be able to ramp it up pretty quickly, but. You know, the, the, the hydrogen play is all about, obviously, technology and making a market because it's not profitable. Blue hydrogen is profitable, but it's not, it's, you know, green hydrogen is not profitable right now. So, so um, yeah. what were the findings in terms of the, the, your, your report? So in terms of the report, I mean, we looked at green hydrogen in particular. Uh, so we, and we looked at, well, we called it clean hydrogen, which included blue and green. And blue, let's remember in terms of the color, just means that you're producing it from gas with carbon capture and storage. So in the case of Saudi Arabia, you know, they uh, had one of the first ammonia um, shipments uh, based out of, you know, high blue hydrogen production um, on the back of existing infrastructure and expertise that they have in abundance uh, around sort of their gas infrastructure, particularly in the eastern province, um, and also carbon capture, uh, you know, increasing carbon capture experience. 
So, you know, they, that's sort of the first step is how do you ramp up blue hydrogen production in the kingdom and start to develop that market that you're talking about? Because, you know, at the same time as building um, hydrogen capacity and production capacity, you need the demand to be there. Um, and this is where I would point to, you know, one of the um, most sort of interesting and I think uh, powerful uh, programs that the U.S. Uh, and John Kerry's team have put forward in the run-up to uh, COP26, which is, you know, encouraging very large uh, corporates and manufacturers and global consumers to commit to buying clean hydrogen in order to develop that market. So what we see now, it's sort of this burgeoning market as we have new trade with sort of Japanese buyers, production in the Gulf, um, new, uh, you know, particularly with the latest infrastructure bill in the U.S., a hub that's likely to emerge uh, somewhere in the U.S. around hydrogen. That market is coming online. But as you said, green hydrogen just on the cost basis is far, I mean, we're talking about something that happens in the next six, seven, eight years that it really becomes commercially viable. Um, there's a lot of public money. You know, I mentioned Japan. Also in, in, in Europe, it's the Germans mm -hmm. um, and that are really putting a lot of uh, cash into this. And so we found in our report, um, again, that there's progress that's being made. And if they can stick to this net zero trajectory, um, and we did look a lot to the IEA's net zero uh, trajectory, but if green hydrogen can ramp up in the kind of speed, and you're right, it's a, it's a cascading effect, right, as these costs start to, to drop. Um, then there's a lot of benefits out there, right? And we found that, you know, um, uh, you know, cumulative investments for, you know, in the U.S., China, Japan, um, of like $300 billion through 2030 um, could start to really develop this hydrogen value chain, even if green hydrogen isn't itself commercially viable until sort of the end of that period. And is that realistic, that's a, that $300 billion number in terms of what you see out there? Uh, here and there. I mean, it's it's a it's it's an industry which is coming up, right? So it's hard to tell right now. There's um, a lot of pilot projects that are sort of scattered around the world, and there's a lot of big commitments that have come from governments. I think the real trick is going to be, you know, how can we mobilize private sector capital and financing around some of these projects? Um, and you know, you mentioned uh, liquid products. There's also Air Liquide in France. There's a few big players that have been developing this hydrogen infrastructure, and we start to see that financing really coming online. And that gives me hope that we can get to that $300 billion figure, but it's ambitious. Uh, there's no question. Philip Cornell, specialist on energy foreign policy, joining us from Washington. Philip, thank you so much for your time. What a great discussion. Thanks a lot, Lucian and, and Richard. It's really a pleasure to join you guys. Phil, just, uh, just a tutorial, masterful, uh, masterful tutorial. Thank you so much. Really great conversation with Philip Cornell. Again, you can watch all of these conversations and different segments on our YouTube channel. They go up there individually. Um, but that was just a great conversation with Philip. We were very fortunate because he's just been to the region talking to people and, and participating in conferences and doing you know meetings on the side for, for the Atlantic Council and his other, other gigs. So we got really added value and the benefit of his recent travel. So just very informative conversation. Yella, Saudi in a minute. Yella, Saudi in a minute. <laughs> oh, here we go, number one. Saudi Arabian oil company joins Rice Carbon Hub Research Initiative. Uh, Aramco, the Saudi Arabian oil company, recently joined Rice University's Carbon Hub Research Initiative program that focuses on the development of sustainable uses of hydrocarbons to further the energy transition. 
First launched in 2019, the program supports a zero-emission future in which hydrogen energy and advanced carbon materials are produced together from hydrocarbons in a sustainable and efficient manner. So hydrogen energy and advanced carbon materials produced. Aramco has joined this initiative with a five-year sponsorship commitment and brings a $10 million worth of funding for the initiative. Saudi Arabia is really leaning into hydrogen. Um, we've already talked about it in this program. We talked about it a little bit with Philip Cornell. They're really leaning into hydrogen now. They just started the um, uh, uh, program at NEOM, the uh, project at NEOM, I, I should say, the $5 billion green hydrogen initiative there. This is cool, though. I mean, Saudi Aramco and, and Houston have a long history together. We had a conversation with Mae Mozani, who spent a lot of her career as an Aramco official in Houston. Um, but this is the type of stuff that uh, is really cool to see Aramco get involved in. You know, they're leaning forward in all sectors. So this Carbon Hub members, and it's, it's an interesting uh, initiative, Carbon Hub members plan to develop carbon materials to potentially displace emissions-intensive materials across broad industry sectors. Examples include steel and other metals, concrete and soil enhancers. enhancers. For instance, innovative carbon conductors could address market needs for increased electrification and alleviate emissions and environmental impacts associated with mining copper and aluminum. So, uh, yeah, so they're really thinking about this is what the, this is. This is the Ramco that does this. You mm -hmm. know, PIF does this too, investing in, in cutting edge technologies for the next, you know, the, the global energy transition. And it's, it's good business. Indeed. Yella number two, Saudi Venture Capital, one of the most prominent venture investment ecosystem development companies in Saudi Arabia, has signed a new investment agreement with Flat Six Labs the leading seed and early stage venture capital firm in the MENA region to introduce the quote startup seed fund. The fund ends to the fund aims to support startups with growth potential and provide more than 20 Saudi startups annually with seed capital over the next three years, in addition to a number of other benefits. Uh, you know, uh, this is something that uh, it would be nice to, you know, we have Umjad Ahmed comment on this. Um, and something we talked about, and what this, and one of the things we talked about with Umjad was the the Jada Fund of Funds, and what PIF is doing, and in positioning money with venture capitalists who know the sectors, know the territory, so they're not investing money themselves. This is interesting too. And this is very, this is so very uh, U.S. in many ways, you know, venture venture capital, because this is Flat Labs and SVC are just creating this vehicle and you know to start up seed fund and then they're going to go out and get investors so they're not putting in their own money mm -hmm. they're looking for 40 to raise 40 million dollars and one of the things Amjad did mention that unique and well distinctive and about the Saudi VC ecosystem is that there's a significant the, the majority of, of investors are Saudi which is a, a very important part of building that ecosystem and, and, and having it grow so I don't. It'd be interesting. They're going to raise forty million dollars. I wonder where they're going to get it from. My guess is going to be, you know, majority Saudi investors. Mm -hmm. Richard, and just we, to add to that, so you know, it it the, the fund aims to support one hundred and eighty entrepreneurs, create more than six thousand jobs, and investment will range from two hundred thousand to four hundred thousand per company. We talk, and I feel like a broken record saying this, and I'm, I'm sorry to our listeners, but this is doing the 966, producing the 966 is one of the most 
um, educational experiences, um, I think for both of us. And when we have conversations with guys like Umjad, it's just like, it's completely fascinating. You're really looking into, you know, for example, somebody who's, who's been in this space for, you know, decades. And one of the interesting takeaways, for example, that he was talking about is a, a impediment to really growing and having that vibrant, um, ecosystem in Saudi Arabia is, you know, being able to have a larger market size along with other GCC or Gulf nations. You know, if you're investing in Saudi Arabia, your market size is Saudi Arabia. If you're investing in New York City to expand that company you're investing in across the United States is easy. But in, in the Gulf, it is not. Mm-hmm. Just little things like that that you sort of you glean from um, again. And, and please go back and watch if you haven't yet our conversation with Umjad. It was just really good. But um, very, very fascinating. You know, there's a lot of uh, encouraging uh, numbers coming out of Saudi Arabia when it comes to startups, but it's still very nascent. This is huge, though, as you noted. Yeah, it's a big thing. Number three, how do we say this again? Oh boy! Well, I, please let's uh, let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Completely flanked. We Hanagia. <laughs> we eight qualified bidders for Hanagia. Yes, nice. Um, <laughs> thank you, Lucian. Uh, the national reported on Monday that the Saudi Ministry of Industry and Mineral Resources announced eight qualified bidders for the Hanagia mine site. Qualified bidders have been given two months to complete and submit their proposals. The Saudi Geological Survey has confirmed the site's considerable geological potential of more than 25 million tons of zinc and copper, both of which are critical minerals for the global energy transition. The... um Eight qualified bidders, Alara Saudi Ventures Limited, Al Masan Al Cobra Mining Company, AMAC, Essel Mining Industries Limited, Ivanhoe, Moxico, Norin Mining Limited, Saudi Arabian Mining Company, Madden, and Vendata Limited. See, I just wanted to throw out a bunch of names that I could mispronounce just to kind of even the score there. Um, this is huge. I mean, that's um, we've actually talked about this on a, on a separate segment before. Mining is, you know, sort of the forgotten about but huge industry in Saudi Arabia and um, a lot of a lot of promise here. Realistically, when they look at these, the the, the in, uh, logistics industrial logistics uh, program, which is uh, which is in charge of the you know overseas in terms of the Vision Twenty Thirty initiatives, you know, looking at these sectors, you know, automotive, defense, uh, mining. This mining is closest. You know, the mining mm-hmm. sector is already making good money, and it could just it could just blow up now. I will say, just for context, Saudi Arabia already currently accounts for nearly 38% of the Middle East and, and Africa's 16 billion metals and mining industry market. So just to your point, it's, it's already significant. And it, with the new mining law and their uh, you know, approach to uh, outside investment, I think it will grow. What I think is notable about this, and you mentioned the, 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 the applicants who made the first cut, so Alara Saudi Ventures is Australia-based. Uh, Emac Almasano Cobra Mining is a Saudi company, and it's a, a well-established Saudi company. Essel Mining and Industries is India, Indian-based. Ivanhoe Electric, Canadian. Moxico Resources, UK. Norin Mining, Hong Kong. Madden, of course, Saudi Arabia. Vedanta Limited, India. This is what you want. Fascinating. Yep. You know, so one of these companies, and let's say it's, you know, uh, let's say it's Ivanhoe Electric. That's a Canadian company. They're coming in with investment and expertise. This is what you want. Interesting. So it's a, global. It's yeah. Really, it's, it's really nice uh, distribution. 
Hanagia is the largest exploration site in Saudi Arabia, covering an area of more than 350 square kilometers. Um, has huge mining potential. So, the, and these bidders obviously see it. Yeah, and I guess it you know it could potentially generate up to 3,000 direct and indirect jobs once it once it gets going. Cool. Number four. Um, oh, sorry, please. Four. No, four no. Is, is four is you. Yes, yes. Four is I me. Got yes. Through, okay. Sorry. I got through Hanagia. I, I messed it up last week and just dropped one totally. So, <laughs> yeah, um, well, I'm I'm quitting now. I'm stopping. I'm <laughs> um, number four. Saudi Arabia recorded zero COVID nineteen deaths for the first time in two years. The Saudi Gazette reported that on Tuesday this week, the kingdom did not record any deaths due to the coronavirus infection during the past 24 hours for the first time in more than two years. Mabruk to our friends in Saudi Arabia and to the Saudi government for just having one of the most progressive, and I use that term specifically, policies when it comes to the coronavirus, COVID-19, proactive, and they have put themselves in a position to not just reach this milestone of having nobody die from COVID in a single day, which is huge, but also for their economy to absolutely roar back to life in 2022, um, with some figures putting the GDP growth this year as high as 7.5%. Um, just not enough you can say about how important this is. Well, you always hold your breath with with uh, COVID, but absolutely, this you have to celebrate this. So. Mm-hmm. Point of comparison, so the first death of coronavirus infection, it was reported in the kingdom on March 24, 2020. So, so it, like you say, in two years. This Tuesday, Saudi Arabia saw 116 new cases with only two reported to be critical. This Tuesday in Shanghai, they recorded 17,077 new local infections, surpassing the highest daily record of, of 13,000 cases in Wuhan reported in February 2020, so very early in the, in the pandemic there. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pandemic still raging around mm-hmm. the globe in, very, in, in various parts, and, and, you know, it may come back, but the Saudis have done a really good job. It will be interesting now because they have opened up everything. There are no restrictions right now going into Saudi. So it will be interesting how they do this, but they've managed it spectacularly well. And we've heard from numerous um, of our Saudi friends that this Ramadan feels very different to them. Um, you know, for the, really the first normal Ramadan in, in a couple of years. Yeah. And um, just anecdotally hearing stories like, man, it's just so good to be back with my family and not having to worry. And, you know, obviously, like you said, the uh, coronavirus COVID-19 is fickle and comes back and everything. I mean, the United States right now is at a lull, but the gridiron dinner where almost everybody, every politician in Washington went last week yeah. looks like it turned into a bit of a super spreader event, um, yeah. which is sad. hope everybody's doing well. but And that's not good because that gridiron event will have a lot of old people. Yeah. No. <laughs> so it's, it's, um, yeah, Older. but just what, what a, what a, what a milestone for Saudi Arabia. You cannot say enough about it. You know, they, Saudi Arabia deserves, you know, some criticism. It deserves some praise on this matter. It really put the safety of its people first. I mean, you know, scaling back the Hajj, um, very strict restrictions on um, what you could do during the height of the pandemic. All of that stuff paid off. Agreed. Um, number five. Big PIS spend to push Saudi construction market to pre-COVID levels, uh, buoyed by the resurgence of the industry, p- 
post-pandemic, Saudi Arabia's awarded construction contracts surged to $38 billion in 2021, with Q4 alone registering uh, 70.2 billion rials, the highest in nearly six years. So 70.2 billion rials is, what is that, about 15, 16 billion? Um, so it was a good quarter. Uh, this is reported by the Arab News. The kingdom has seen an uptick in contract awards over five consecutive quarters. Now, oil prices are driving this, as they did in 2013 and 2014 as well, right? Yeah, yes. You know, uh, I will say this. You know, at the end of 2021, when we had Fahad Malkian, who was who was awesome and a, a really good lawyer in Riyadh and pays close attention to this, he said 2022 would see a real uptick in, uptick in business activity. I think this this was built in. Obviously, the oil revenue was is a bonus, but I think this investment was built in because one of the things he pointed out was the number of the giga projects we're gonna we're gonna hit that that construction uh, segment along their timeline. It was gonna be pick up, and um, and and as as this article said, the push is mainly spending on big ticket developments like Neom and the Red Sea project. Um, and also their their expansions in the oil and gas production. So these are all things that you know come back down to the construction sector and contracting sector, and it's been good for business. Just as a point of detail, in terms of the awards, the oil and gas sector uh, was worth about 9.3 billion in Q4. Power sector about 3.2 billion again in Q4. Real estate at 2.03 billion in Q4. So as I said, our friend Fahad sort of, he called this. He said 2022 is going to be a growth year, and it really looks like it is. Lots going on. Number six in our final yellow for today, um, Saudi Arabia buys 625,000 tons of wheat from Americas, Europe, and Australia. Sago, the Saudi Arabian, uh, Sago is Saudi Arabian Sa- Grains Organization? Yeah. Yep. Uh, said it made the purchase at an average price of $422.47 a ton. That was up sharply from $365 a ton in, I don't have a date here. Oh, December, excuse me. Yeah. Traders say Saudi Arabia is among uh, importing countries hit by the disruption um, caused by the Ukrainian, uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, Russia and Ukrainian exports are both down, obviously causing a surging price in wheat and other commodities. Really great daily, uh, the Daily New York Times podcast, I think it was yesterday, about this and how it's not just the Russian and Ukrainian wheat that is coming offline, but the effect of, of gas prices on fertilizer and how that is actually affecting uh, grain and food prices worldwide. We talked last week a little bit about how Egypt is also really experiencing a a serious problem when it comes to food. So um, this is interesting. Saudi Arabia stopped producing wheat um, probably about a decade ago, maybe more recently, but um, just interesting, keeping an eye on the food space. Saudi's in pretty good position. I mean, the Gulf states are dependent on imports for about 80 to 90 percent of their food. I mean, so and and I didn't know this. It's, Egypt is the largest importer of wheat in the world. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. It's crazy. Um, but, you know, Ukraine and and, and Russia account for 10 percent uh, between Ukraine, 10 percent 
uh, of global wheat. Russia, 16% of global wheat. Corn, combined, they're 16%. Barley, combined, they're about 30%. But this is interesting to me. So you, SAGO, Saudi Arabian Grains Authority, what, Grains Organization. Organization, I think, yeah. So that's sort of the purchaser. There's a purchaser. There's also a SALIC, which is Saudi Agricultural and Livestock Investment Company. And this was this was founded in 2009 to sort of monitor and push and invest in uh, production abroad. So, you know, a lot of these, uh, as we know, uh, you know, investors have been investing in in agricultural land in uh, in, in Ethiopia Africa and elsewhere. Yeah. They also have, sound like they also have invested in Ukraine, and they actually got their first shipment of wheat from Ukraine in April 2020. You know, obviously they don't fully rely on it. So, so, but that's off the board for them. But they're not d- dependent on Ukrainian wheat, uh, mm-hmm. and they can they have other sources. Australia, like I said, Australia, America, and Europe have been their primary. Um, but the Salic initiative is interesting because they want to get 10%. I think what the goal right now is 10% of all uh, grain imports coming from these Saudi investments abroad. And obviously they want to grow that number. But uh, Saudi obviously has more resources, financial resources, than, than other countries in the region like like Egypt and and Jordan and Lebanon that are getting hit hard by the, this this uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, really cool. Whenever you fly into uh, Riyadh, or you're, really it's mostly just Riyadh, but you see the central pivot agriculture in the desert, and it's just astounding to see. Um, it's really cool. Richard, what an awesome, what an awesome, awesome episode, a a great week. Um, If you haven't done so yet, follow us or subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. That's how you can help us and support us if you like what we're doing. Um, And you can also see all of our other conversations, episodes, all of that on YouTube, on our website. Check it all out. Richard, thank you so much. We're we're building an impressive library. We sure are. Phil Cornell today, but I mean, we just we're just rolling them out of really, really bright, informed people. That uh, it's just, uh, yeah, take a look because there's a lot there. And we're managing not to age too too badly during the process, um, which is kind of amazing. But um, Richard, thank you very much. Thank you, Lucian. Well, Well done.